Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So I'll talk for a few minutes and then I'm interested in learning about what's happening for you when we're, we're sitting here. So hopefully my words will be words of encouragement. Yeah. Uh, this month we've been exploring together uh, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, which is the one of two descriptions of the Buddha's awakening. Um, the less formal description, actually. So there's one description in the Pali Canon where the Buddha describes his awakening in terms of the first no- four noble truths. And um, it's all very formal and put together so well. And this is a much more personal account of the Buddha's awakening. And I've been reading it very slowly over the past few weeks. So uh, those of you who have been coming regularly, this will be cumulative, I hope. And... Uh, I'll also try and refer to what we've been exploring so that um, it's available for all of you. Um, Here's what the Buddha says in his description of his awakening. This dharma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and consequent, not confined by thought, subtle, Sensed by the wise, but people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight, and revel in their place to see this ground. To see this ground. So in the first week, what we were exploring was this comment about the way that people love their place. And you can really notice this sitting tonight because it's very loud in the neighborhood. You know? mm-hmm. And for every sound that you hear, you fall into the awareness trap of clinging to the sound by setting it in the context of your preferences. I like this. I don't like that. And then from there, memory shows up with some force and puts that liking and disliking into a context, and then you have a story about the sound, and then we get caught in thinking about our narrative, thinking that our story about the sound is actually what's happening. You see? And so we're living in a kind of virtual reality of being caught in this story that we've created about the sound, which is so divorced from what's actually happening. It's interesting. 
Because, as the Buddha is saying here, why is it so hard to see the way things are? Because people love, delight, and revel in their place. We all cling to our viewpoint. Does anybody notice this in conflict in relationship? The way that as soon as there's any kind of uh, challenge to our viewpoint, um, the whole body goes into a kind of defensive spasm. You know? And the interesting thing about loving relationship is that as it matures, it screws up our viewpoint so that we can't delight in our viewpoint. We actually have to take in something other than our viewpoint, which is how spirituality is usually defined, is waking up to something other than your viewpoint. Okay, But then what happens is, in the course of history, the, the hierarchies of our culture have taken this idea that the ground is not what's actually here, but it's something that you have to find. You know? And they focus so much on that that we start to think that the Dharma, or that the way, or the path, the Marga, or the Tao, is actually something that takes us out of here. But the Buddha is saying what obscures the nature of how things are is the view. And so maybe for somebody, maybe what obscures is the assumption that you have to look for something. That changing your baby's diaper is not deep samadhi. It's got to be something else. And then you have, you know, Brahmin classes, which still exist in a different form, reminding you over and over again that the samadhi of changing your baby's diaper is not enough. That's, that's not an essential practice. That's just what you do until you're ready to go practice. You know? Or your yoga teacher will become so obsessed with the technique, is what we were talking about an hour ago, that they'll keep reminding you that if you keep focusing on the technique and refining it by going to their workshop over and over and over again, then eventually you'll get the yoga. But then you're missing the yoga for the technique. Does this make sense? And then we're all practicing all this physical geometry, completely missing the point of the practice. And some of you might know the great Zen story about this with the finger pointing at the moon. I had this this weekend. I just came back an hour ago, or a couple hours ago, from uh, spending some time up north, north of Algonquin Park. And uh, the stars were so beautiful. you know, And the moon was so beautiful that you could see the forest for miles and miles and miles because everything was so bright. You know. And there's a story in the Zen tradition of somebody seeing the moon and going, have you ever had this experience? Like, there's nothing to say to them. And then if you're an Ashtanga yoga practitioner, you have to do Ujjayi Pranayama (laughs) while you're holding your finger at the moon. And if you're into, like, Iyengar yoga, you'll focus on the way the skin spins and the upper arm bone 
what else do you do? Oh yeah, you'll strap your legs together <laughs> with like three blocks and uh, and if you're like a Bikram practitioner, you have to do all this in a very hot environment, you know. And then after a while, you get so into the technique that you forget completely what all that technique is pointing towards. And so this is what the Buddha is saying, that we forget about it. It's a kind of amnesia. That awakening is not something you find, that it's just what's left when the viewpoint is let go of. And the interesting thing is that you don't actually let go of your viewpoint. You see that the viewpoint is just another arising phenomena like sound. You're not letting go of the sound, and you're also not letting go of your thoughts about the sound. You see? You can't let go of something. As soon as you come back to the breath, though, you see that the sound and your thoughts about the sound just seem to dissipate because they're transient. But you don't do the let go. And this is like the first phase of meditation is like trying to make your thoughts stop or trying to let go of things. And you try and let go of something, and three minutes later, you're just as neurotic (laughs) as you were when you were gripped by the commentary you had. Um, Here's a little uh, passage from the Chan poem called Relying on Mind. Suppressing activity to reach stillness just creates agitation. Suppressing activity to reach stillness just creates agitation. Dwelling in such dualities, how can you know your identity? People who don't know their identity bog down on both sides. Rejecting form, they get stuck in it. Rejecting form, they get stuck in it. Seeking emptiness, turn away from it. The more people talk and ponder, the further they spin out of accord. Bring grabbing and speculation to a stop, and the whole world opens up to you. Bring grabbing, graha, apadigraha, counter-grabbing, not grabbing everything as me and mine. And the whole world opens up. It's like this when you're arguing with someone you love, you know. You, you leave the speculation alone, because you can't let go of your viewpoint, right? You can't drop it. It's not so easy. But you notice that you're caught in the viewpoint, and then it's hard for clinging to keep clinging when you notice it. It's like clinging only does a good job when you don't notice it. And then as soon as you notice the clinging, clinging can't cling anymore. And then you see the viewpoint that you're caught in. So back to the Buddha. He says, so the the first week we talked about the way that we delight and revel in our place. Uh, Last week we were talking about this ground, the term this ground. That the Buddha doesn't say, people notice the ground of how things are. We hear that a lot now in in the translation of this, that we should be noticing the nature of how things are. 
But that's not what the Buddha is saying. He's saying, notice the nature of this ground. Another way of saying that is, notice how things happen, not how things are. Because things are not a certain way. I had this experience yesterday. We always go for a walk behind our properties, town land. And uh, we're going for a walk, and we see our neighbor, and he says, oh, you know, do you guys usually walk down that way? It's barely a path. I say, oh yeah, for about 20 minutes. He said, have you ever walked 25 minutes <laughs> down there? He said, no. He said, oh, you should walk 25 minutes down there. This person, by the way, his name is Jack, but his name's also John. <laughs> when we first met him, I said, your mailbox is Jack, but everybody calls you John. He said, oh, I don't care. Jack or John is. <laughs> Not a lot of clinging <laughs> to his name. And um, so we walked 25 minutes and five more minutes and there's this beautiful waterfall. This amazing waterfall. And the waterfall, it comes down uh, this sort of twisting rock and then it comes into this river and then there's a whirlpool and then the flow of the water curls back again towards the waterfall. It's the strangest thing. And then it curls again and goes back out into the river. So it's like this current comes down. And I kept thinking about, how could I write about this? How could I write? I can't talk about it. And, and the river was kind of my own struggle. Because it's like every time you see a current going one way, underneath it there's a current going another way. And then if you try and get into that current, there's always a current going. And after all, so you just can't stop I mean, you just have to stop. Because the mind wants to to figure it out. You know, there's a Zen saying, as soon as you notice thusness, it's gone. So as soon as you pin your partner down, this is how they are. This is what I do. Or as soon as you pin yourself down, oh, this is how I am. You find this in asana practice, right? The form are designed to take you into patterns of sensation in the core of the core of the core not the core that your yoga teacher keeps saying is the core but the core of the core and you start to feel deep patterns of emotion and sensation and the mind doesn't have context for it so the prana the breath goes down through the meridians of the central axis and then it gets caught because the mind is putting the feeling and plugging it into a context. But the feeling itself has no context. It's just pure feeling. And that's why the Buddha's first instruction on mindfulness of breathing is to just feel the breath. And if it's long, let it be long. And if it's short, let it be short. You don't have to plug it into a context. And in Hatha Yoga, we're doing the same thing. We're exploring these new patterns of feeling without putting them into a context. But it's very hard, because when you start feeling deep emotions and sensations in the core of the pelvic floor, the mind is always trying to react to those feelings by putting them into a commentary. Has anybody noticed this before? And then you find that you're distracted in the yoga poses, every class, in the same place, in the same yoga poses. And then when you go home and you do those yoga poses, you always skip those poses. Or you stay there for like two breaths. Am I the only body? Okay. 
very interesting. So then the Buddha says something about this. He says, and revel in their place to see this ground. What's the ground? And now he describes the ground. So you think he's going to describe something very solid, right? Using this term, the ground. But he says, this conditions that. Conditioned arising. Okay? So he's saying, I've woken up to something, and immediately the mind goes, oh, it's like you look up. Like I've woken up to something. But he's waking up from something. Waking up from a viewpoint. And now when he tries to describe what he's noticed, he describes it as, this conditions that. Conditioned arising. What does that mean? This conditions that. Conditioned arising. Of course, this is karma. But what does that mean? This conditions that. Someone? This conditions that. Patterns. Patterns? What kind of pattern is he talking about? Viewpoint. A viewpoint. So the viewpoint that you have about something actually transfigures the thing you're noticing. So you're driving down the highway and you're in a rush, and everyone's going too slow. Or you're irritated, and everyone at work is irritating. You see? So it's not enough that you notice how things are occurring, but you're also noticing that the way that you notice something actually transfigures that which you're noticing And this is called conditioned arising. Does this make sense? A little bit? I had this experience. Um, I was driving with our son, he was an infant, and uh, we heard this squealing noise from our car. And so we had to drive the car to a dealership because we got this car and I just thought maybe it would be better if we went to a dealer to like know this noise or whatever. Maybe it's still under warranty or something. And uh, so we drove to the dealer And the manager was so impatient with me and then didn't come out for a while. And, you know, our son was like, I don't know, nine months old or something. and Like he was still nursing and so it was like, what do I do with him, you know? I I had tried nursing him, it didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I was really getting frustrated, you know, and and all I was thinking was how I was going to write a letter to the owner of this car dealership about how the service was so poor. And then another person came out to help me. So nice, this man. Like, oh, I'm really sorry, but the manager just found out that his wife was very ill. And he's been trying to figure out how to get to the hospital. And immediately, this little bit of information completely changed my whole physiological, psychological response to this situation. Just this little bit of information totally changes the viewpoint. But when you think about it, most of the day, the viewpoint that is most dominant is how what's happening fits in to my story about how all this is supposed to go. Like the current 
that you just described. Yeah. Because it's pushed by the inertia of the water, uh-huh. but then it has to be swallowed back into the water to be able to move on again. Yeah. 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 And we don't like it when our stories get swallowed, do we? We want the inertia just to keep pushing them out in the direction that we have planned. So here's what he says. This conditions that, conditioned arising. And it's also hard for people who love, delight, and revel in their place to see this ground, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of basis, the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nirvana. This is the first time the word nirvana is used. He actually uses the term nibbana, which is the Pali equivalent of nirvana. And there's a really fascinating word, nibbana or nirvana, which means to extinguish, to blow out. It's very similar to the word nirodaha. That, but, but what's important here is to ask this question, well, what's being blown out? When you hear these sounds outside, that's not a distraction that we have to blow out. If there's a lot of thinking when we're sitting, you don't blow it out. You can't blow it out. This will create the striving and agitation. What gets blown out is the view, is the viewpoint. Because your viewpoint is what determines the quality of your experience of each and every moment. And it's interesting that in the deep stages of samadhi, which in the Pali terminology is called the jhanas, that you actually enter into different levels of samadhi um, by practicing generosity and loving-kindness. If you ever go on a retreat where they're focusing on deep levels of concentration, they do it by practicing loving-kindness. It's very interesting. Because if there's any self-centeredness in that technique, then nothing gets blown out. And then you get slippage. So you get a little bit of good absorption and then the mind identifies as that's happening to me, that's important, I'm special, I'm spiritual. <laughs> and then it's all gone. And we've all had this experience. And the way I like to work with this with people, with students, is like when people have experiences that some would call awakening experiences. It's good to acknowledge it and then to find out, okay, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do with this? You know, not what does it mean, not that it's important or special, but how is it going to affect your day-to-day actions? Because otherwise you can drop acid and you can have a moment of interconnection with all of reality. But then the acid goes away, and so does samadhi. It's impermanent, it's transient. It goes away, and then how are you supported to then take that insight 
and allow it to to mature into wisdom and compassion. Because the 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 peak experience is not really so important. Michael, I was just thinking of religions. Uh-huh. And they're some of the most enduring Yes. I was just thinking of people who are deeply let who let Christians, for example, who deeply mm-hmm. believe in the Christianity but also yeah. want to experience, you know, what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Are those two things incompatible? Are you asking my opinion? Yes. Yes. They are. I think that I think what's incompatible is that as soon as you take your experience, especially if it's a kind of insight arrived at through meditation, then the force of your cultural vocabulary is always going to superimpose itself on that experience. And then you're going to say that was Krishna or that was, you know, uh, Jesus or that was Buddha. I mean, whatever, you know, whatever words you use. And then the mind, because of the momentum of the eye maker, comes in and frames that in a story. And then what happens is we start to relate to the story and we think the technique got us there rather than seeing it as a moment of awareness, free of all that cultural imposition or superimposition. And so what's frustrating about meditative practices is that they keep pointing us over and over again to the subtle way that the view comes in and captures us or entangles us and creates separation again. And for me personally, that's what's so compelling about the yoga teachings That's what's so compelling about the Buddha's Dharma before someone called it Buddhism is this this real radical uh, way of seeing that literally uh, pulls the rug out from under your feet to reveal not a ground but the groundless ground that the Buddha here calls this ground not the ground. And for many of us, we don't want to look at this ground because we think that the ground is a deep, spiritual, mystical utopia that we're waiting to find. And we don't see that that's the same projection we put on other people when we want them to be our lover for a night or whatever. It's like that desire for intimacy, but that we're doing it in such an extroverted and distracted way that it just keeps reinforcing loneliness and separation and anxiety. Like the people who go through the years of psychotherapy who who can still just talk about their problems without actually dropping it. So what's the technology we need to drop it? And um, that's why I think some technique is important. Because you can't see through this constantly shifting viewpoint um, without learning how to work with your mind. 
I remember having this experience once. I, I was, uh, without giving away too much of my biography, for a while I spent six months once in Algonquin Park living in a Volkswagen van, reading Carl Jung's collected works, being unemployed and depressed. And uh, it was in March, so it was when all the lakes were uh, um, defrosting, <laughs> thawing. Have you ever heard the sound of a big lake thawing? It's like thunder. It's amazing sound. I'd never really heard that before. And um, I remember um, that uh, the engine wasn't working, and there was no way I could heat up the van. And I remember it not being such a big deal. But then I was getting so frustrated and so angry. And then I had this realization, very vivid realization, that there were things that could happen to me in my life that would totally overwhelm me, that I didn't know actually how to work with, and that all those things were just emotions that would seem most threatening to me. The most threatening thing that could happen was not heat running out in Algonquin Park in March, but just the fact that I didn't know how to work with my own mind. And this became fascinating to me. If you ever read Jung's autobiography, you know, he talks about this a lot. and never comes to terms with it, I think. You know. How to work with your own mind. How to sit still and watch your experience from a place of stillness. And you know in this leading edge 10-month course we're doing for, for therapists, it's amazing to watch how it has taken so many months, I know some of you are in this course, so I can speak about this, but it takes so many months for people to recognize that the technique that we're actually learning that is beneficial to others is how we can learn how to sit still. And how that's the technique. And, and it's a really fascinating process to watch. So this last uh, passage of the Buddha. The stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of basis, the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nirvana. And then, last sentence is amazing. Were I to teach this and others not understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for me. <laughs> Were I to teach this and others not understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for me. I love how human it is at the end. <laughs> and then some of you know he doesn't know what to do. And um, so he decides that what he'll do is he'll go to his yoga teachers. He had two yoga teachers. And he'll go tell them about his experience. And, uh, and then he finds out that both of the teachers who taught him yoga passed away. And then he's frustrated again because he feels like those would be the only people who would really understand even though they couldn't help me get to this level of seeing, they would understand and they would benefit. And then something happens for him where he realizes that the reason why he should share it with other people is because there might be something of benefit 
is kind of interesting. And then he's motivated by the benefit other people might receive. Um, but without attachment, it's like he's, he's, he's not putting himself first. This is how the story goes, anyways. We don't know if any of this is true. Okay. So, what's happening for you? This is the theory. So what's happening in your experience? Please don't be shy. And when you respond, please don't edit. So what's happening for you? Where the technique we've been using is to notice the inhaling and exhaling through the process of feeling. Feeling inhaling, feeling exhaling. And you had some homework, which is to do this every day. 20 minutes. So what did you notice? Now's your chance. Well, actually I noticed while you were speaking Mm -hmm. and how you speak about Gotham Park Uh and how I absolutely love nature as well. Uh So I could feel almost like feeling just rise right down to my belly and then this great longing. And it's almost like, oh, take, and I know, just notice this story I have of, I guess, of what it means to me, uh-huh. right? My viewpoints. Uh-huh. It takes me out of the city, of all the pollution and all these things I can't handle sometimes. Uh-huh. Everything's so much better out in the countryside. <laughs> so I just was able to notice how every time you you said it, you brought it up twice, different occasions in both times. I, I noticed my viewpoint instantly take over. Yeah. Carry me there. Yeah. yeah, our son, you know, he's he's there at the waterfall. And then he's in the car playing with crumbs. And like, he's just as content and immersed in both those situations. Mm-hmm. And, there, and, and like, he doesn't think about the waterfall anymore. <laughs> he's now he's just playing with the crumbs. And uh, like, he's just as into the crumbs in the back seat of the car as he is uh, into, what was he doing? He was collecting foam from the waterfall to build a dam. But you, uh, uh, there's, no, there's no separation, there's no duality. So the lesson that you find when you look into the eyes of the loon, that experience has to carry through the day. And if it's not, then we're interested in the places where we're setting up the discord. And we all know that it's easier to feel that experience after days in the wild. We're built that way. But for many of us, the patterns of the mind are not um, subtracted um, through the process of just being in the natural world. Because you're there and after 10 days you bump into someone and then it's all back again. So we still have to practice. And there's different kinds of practices. It's just the one we're we're doing together. There's nothing special about this practice. 
Michael. It's not better than any other practice. Yeah. The question was about um, technique. Because, um, you know, this practice was aimed at non-attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a certain point where you just drop technique as well. Mm-hmm. Technique just drops though. Yeah. So like, you, if you drop the technique, then you've added a technique. Right. So, like for example, feeling inhaling, feeling exhaling, feeling inhaling, feeling exhaling, distraction, noticing, you know, whatever story you've got going, coming back to the breath. Oh, you know, I'm really distracted to, oh, noticing the contact, come back to the inhaling. And then after a while, like, a lot of the chatter just starts to go, this is often called samatha. It's like the common. Um, and then once in a while, there's just awareness. And then we become aware. Oh, that was so quiet. That was so cool. It's like so quiet. Oh, that must be the God. the awareness. <laughs> you talked about this last week, right? How did you? I said, I said, boy, I really like this. And I said, hey, guy, what are you doing here? And I said, all over. Yeah. Friends. Huh. I'm noticing now that um, tonight, um, the commentary that came in there, yeah. Raquel, was yeah. um, that um, rather than, at one point, rather than the um, thoughts and viewpoint coming in to interrupt the breathing. Mm-hmm. Actually, the breathing would just come back and interrupt the viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And then I said, well, that's cool. And I said, mm. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, like for both of you, because <laughs> I'm sure you're the only ones. Um, when, when you notice that the noticing is happening with judgment or whatever it might be, um, the noticing, or if it's labeling for some of you, that the the label just floats up on the inhale, and then goes away on the exhale. So, like the noticing of the distraction is so soft. So it's like, oh no, okay. There's not a lot of grammar there. So that it's important that the, the noticing is just so, so, so gentle. My friend Trudy Goodman always says, it's just like if your little kid is like running quickly towards the river. Just like, just gently pull them away from the river. And it's like that with the breath, you know, just like so gentle, just come back again, come back again, come back again, come back again. And then what happens is, if you keep coming back over and over and over, then some concentration starts happening and you can really hover and stay there. And that's the shift from the sixth limb of yoga to the seventh limb of yoga. From dharana, some of you know this terminology, to dhyana. Is in dharana you're coming back to the object, this in this case the breath, over and over and over. And in dhyana, there's just the object. And the first and that noticing of that is called samadhi. Does that make sense? Susan? 
Did you have a question? Um, I just actually wanted you to maybe clarify that, Mark, earlier on when you were talking, you said there's no dropping, there's no letting go. Or maybe you were talking a little bit different context because you were saying that when you don't need to drop the viewpoint. It just drops. You just notice that. Yeah. And then you see it as just yeah. transient. Mm-hmm. You see it transiency. Yeah. But also then you were just talking about the actual dropping the story. And, and I even do struggle yeah. with that, I think, in practice. Uh-huh. Am I noticing or am I dropping? Am I noticing or am I letting go? And yeah. you might just you know, be caught in terminology. Yeah. You could clarify that. Okay. Well, maybe what you're describing is a little bit different. I mean, one thing you can play around with is doing everything you're doing, but without putting a me in it. Mm. So not, am I noticing, am I dropping, but just watch. And just keep watching and notice how, when, when the calmness occurs, that you can start to notice how the viewpoint is just generated moment to moment in the breath cycle. So it's not like I'm dropping or I'm trying to do this. It's just when there's calmness, that story or that viewpoint or the technique just arises and passes away moment to moment Mm -hmm. to moment. But I'm not doing it. And that's what I mean, that I'm not dropping anything. Mark Epstein uses this in the great title of his book, Thoughts Without a Thinker. And you tell someone that, and they're like, oh, I don't know. But just a little bit of meditation practice, and you start to notice that you can think about thoughts, but, or let's use another sense organ, for example, sound. You can make sound, but if you're quiet, you see that sounds just arise and pass away. And thoughts are the same way, like, if you're not making thoughts and you're just noticing that you start to see that thoughts are endless. They have no beginning. They have no end. We don't know where they come from. We don't know where they go. And they come and go and come and go and come and go. And there's no one thinking it. It's just the natural world. And in human form, we experience the mind as thinking, just happening. So that's what I mean, that Susan's not letting go of the... So if you find that in, your, in, you, in the way that you talk to yourself, mm-hmm. when you're meditating, it can reinforce the, like, I'm supposed to do something. And so the first phase is the shamatha, is the calmness, which is just feeling, breathing, feeling, breathing, feeling, breathing. And then the second phase is called vipassana, V means to go into, and pasha is an I, which is often called insight. Is that in the calmness, if you pay attention, you can see through your viewpoint. And what do you see? Impermanence. And that's why the Buddha is very careful. He doesn't say, I have arrived at a ground. He says, I see this ground. Do you see the difference? I see how things are happening. Not, I see the nature of reality. It gives you the feeling again of like some permanence you need to awaken to, which is just Brahmin language, you know. But there's a lot of people in Buddhist systems that speak that language. Oh, of course, yeah, sure. Yeah. That's why they're in Buddhist systems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
The language is very helpful. It's very helpful for keeping a system going. You know? Um, but uh, there's no investment in the system. I have a strange thought about the cooling, the sense of cooling uh-huh. on the inhale. Yeah. What, what, like, who labels it cooling? It, and it didn't feel cooling to me, and mm-hmm. it agitated me because I kept going, why isn't it feeling cooling? It's mm-hmm. supposed to feel cooling. It's not feeling cooling. Yeah. <laughs> like, who decided that that was what yeah. it was? Or why, why is yeah. that? Um, when I inhale, the feeling in the nostrils is cooler than when I exhale. When I exhale, the breath passing through the nostrils feels warmer. When I inhale, it feels cooler. If it doesn't work for you, forget it. Don't ever <laughs> think about it again. It doesn't work. Just don't worry about it. Okay. Yeah. Just go on to the next technique. But the point of that is to tune you into feeling. So that we're not visualizing, we're not looking, just feel what the inhale and exhale feel like, tracking feeling. And when we say feeling, we don't mean what we mean in English feeling, like depressed, <laughs> sad, hurt. Now those are, in, in yoga and Buddhist psychology, those are considered mind states. Feeling is just tracking the sensation, the experience of sensation, feeling. Does that make sense? Just tracking feeling. You can do this all day long. You know, Michael led a great uh, meditation practice when we, we walked through the annex one day. And for the first five minutes, we just noticed air, feeling of air. And then for five minutes, just noticing sound. And it's interesting to do this in a neighborhood where you live where you're so used to seeing the same things all the time, but then just experiencing one sense organ at a time, you know? Such a wonderful practice. Really, really interesting. Michael, yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make sense of it, out of this, but... Good. <laughs> Once the mind starts settling, Yeah. And you've been able to see, oh, there's that conversation I had 20 years ago and I couldn't mm-hmm. finish. And, this, and, and you still settle. Yeah. And everything gets very quiet. Yeah. There's, for me, it's almost like there's, everything is very quiet and I get confused. It's not I get confused, but there's presence and absence. Mm-hmm. And then there's something that pulls me back like, oh, I'm not here, let's come back. I don't know. Mm. Um, and what do you it, mean absence? It's almost like there's... Um, maybe it's th- there's not a me. Uh-huh. But then there's this mechanism of coming back to the breath. But, it's, but I think it's working backwards. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if it, it makes I sense. I think what you're saying is like... Is there an absence of me for a moment there, or am I just getting distracted, like or dissociating or something? Yeah, but I, I, it feels different than distraction. Yeah. And I don't know. Well, first of all, when we experience some calmness, um, before we get concentrated, usually the 
Eye Maker shows up again <coughs> and tries to figure out how to make it happen to me. It's really weird to watch this. So it's like calmness starts happening and there's not a lot of story about me. Okay? And then somehow, before the concentration deepens, the eye maker is going to show up again. And it's going to try and put what's happening into an into like a context just so it can save itself because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't like want to be out of a job and this is really interesting thing to to notice and this is the difference between the first and second stages of samadhi so the first samadhi is just noticing how things go so well when there's no me story happening and the second stage of samadhi is noticing the me story happen and pull you out then the third stage of samadhi is being able to drop the me story. But you're not dropping it, Susan. Mm-hmm. How do you get from <laughs> one to two? If the eye maker comes in, what do you do? Relaxation. No effort. No effort. Okay, so from this point, if this isn't happening for you, this is all going to sound like a lot of stuff you have to do. No, I, you know, I can relate to Rani, but what, what no. happens to me is I panic. I get this little panicky feeling. It's yeah. so great and then I panic and I don't know where the panic's coming from. It's really yeah. frustrating actually. Yeah. You had a good story about someone in the kitchen banging mm-hmm. uh, oh. something like I'm real, I'm real or something. Oh yeah. <laughs> Do you want to tell that story? Yeah. We had a teacher um, come to Kaya and um, he teaches um, Vipassana retreats yeah. and um, he was talking about um, this shift and I think it's what you're talking about now where before you really deepen then this eye maker comes up and at a certain point it really starts panicking and you feel like you're going to die or disappear or something. And he talked about these two men on this retreat who uh, um, on the same night they had this experience and one of them immediately like went to the kitchen and grabbed a newspaper and started reading the sports section. (laughs) (laughs) And, And the other guy just grabbed his lamp and started banging on the table saying like, I exist. (laughs) 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 but you can notice this too uh, when you're angry how in anger Um, there's kind of like a purity of feeling in anger. It's like a stream, you know. But um, it's all about you. Actually, usually it's all about them. (laughs) 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 And and that's one of the best places to see how we cling to our viewpoint. Because when you're angry, you can't ever take in someone else's viewpoint. 
And so, and, and so you can just see that contraction and entitlement and how they kind of go together in the knot. Okay. We'll save it for next week. Okay. So let's finish chanting. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free of their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free of their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of discontent. May all beings be free from every form of discontent. Namaste, thank you. Mm-hmm. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you.